The scriptural reading this evening is taken from Romans chapter 7, verses 1 to 25. Romans chapter 7, verses 1 to 25, and it's on page uh, 1133 in the Church Bible. An illustration from marriage. Do you know, brothers, for I am speaking to men who know the law, that the law has authority over a man only as long as he lives. For example, by law, a married woman is bound to her husband as long as he is alive. But if the husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. So then... If she marries another man while her husband is still alive, she is called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is released from that law and is not an adulteress even though she marries another man. So, my brothers, you also died to the law through the body of Christ, that you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead in order that we might bear fruit to God. For when we were controlled by the sinful nature, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our bodies, so that we bore fruit for death. But now, by dying to what was once bound us, we have been released from the law, so that we serve in the new way of the spirit, and not in the old way of the written code. Struggling with sin. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. Indeed, I would not have known what sin was except through the law. For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, do not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of covetous desire. For apart from law, sin is dead. Once I was alive apart from law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. I find that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. For sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me and through the commandment put me to death. So then the law is holy and the commandment is holy, righteous and good. Did that which is good then become death to me? By no means. But in order that sin might be recognized as sin, it produced death in me through what was good. So that through the commandment, sin might become utterly sinful. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do, for what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it but it is sin living in me. I know that nothing good lives in me, that is, in my sinful nature, for I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. 
For what I do is not the good I want to do, no, the evil I do not want to do. This I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. So I find this law at work when I want to do good. Evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God and God's law. But I see another law at work in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within my members. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from the body of death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law, but in the sinful nature, a slave to the law of sin. Amen. Well, it's been an interesting month for uh, British politics with the, uh, the election campaign, those uh, first televised leaders' debates, I don't know whether you saw any of those. And um, as the results became, all, became known, all the surmising about what would a hung parliament uh, look like. And um, even after a few days, we still didn't know who the, uh, the new Prime Minister would be. But then we see David Cameron being invited to Buckingham Palace to form the next government, and the next day he and the man he once called a joke, um, standing side by side as best buddies, and the dawn of a new era of uh, consensus government. Everything is fine with the world. But of course, we know it won't be, don't we? You know, within the government, there'll be this continual struggle between those who hold different views, those pulling in different directions. And of course, that's a bit like the Christian life, isn't it? We can have a great baptismal service. We can you know, listen to some great testimonies. Um, we can give the impression to the person being t- baptised that now life is going to be a bed of roses. You know, your problems are over. And in one sense, they are. You know, after all, by trusting in Jesus, your biggest problem, your sin, the guilt of sin, the penalty for sin, has been dealt with. You are saved from eternal punishment. But of course, that doesn't mean to say that the rest of our lives will be problem-free. Because sin still does have sway over us. And it's not uncommon for someone who becomes a Christian to say soon afterwards, I'm not really sure I can be a Christian because I keep failing. What is wrong with me? Well, if that's you, hopefully you'll be encouraged from this evening's sermon that your predicament is normal. And it's actually a positive sign of the Spirit at work within you. Well, let's just have a recap on where we've got to in the short sermon series on the chapters of 6, 6 to 8 of Romans, the, the middle section of this letter that Paul wrote to the church in Rome. And the section we didn't look at this time round, chapters 3 to 5, look at uh, how we are made right with God, what we call being justified. And as Paul says there, we are justified by the grace of God, his undeserved loving kindness, 
We're not saved by trying to keep his law. And chapter 6 to 8 that we're focusing on in this series then focus on how we live the Christian life, how we grow in godliness, the process that is referred to as sanctification. And the big question that comes up in these chapters is that if we're not saved by keeping the law, then what is the role of the law in the life of the Christian? It was a question posed by the two sides of the debate who uh, Jeff introduced last time. We have the the legalists who want to hang on to the law because by keeping it they thought that they would ensure their salvation. And on the other hand, you had the, the antinomians or the libertarians who wanted to do away with the law altogether, almost just rely on their conscience. And to the antinomians, Paul said in chapter 6 that you still have a master to follow. He's just changed. Now your master is Jesus and his righteousness before your master was sin. And if you want to follow this new master, you need to know what his instructions are to you. And you'll find those instructions in his law. To the legalist, Paul says at the start of chapter 7 that uh, if they died with Christ, then they died to the law. They're no longer subject to the law in the same way that uh, in a marriage, if one partner dies, then the other is free from that marriage covenant, the covenant that they've made. So coming back to that question, if we're not saved by keeping the law, if we're not subject to the law in that sense anymore, what role is the law to play in our lives? Well, the first point I want to make is that God's law is good. And this comes out very clearly in this passage. The law is good. And the first reason that Paul gives that the law is good is that it makes us aware of our sin. Paul writes there, I would not have known what sin was except through the law. Now, that doesn't mean if he hadn't known the law, he wouldn't have sinned. You know, we are all by nature sinful. You know, we can't help but sin. The fact that we may not know that we are sinning is no excuse. In the same way that under English law, ignorance is no excuse. Now, the fact that I hadn't realised that my tax disc was two months out of date until Adam pointed it out to me wouldn't have excused me had a policeman noticed that first. And the fact that we may have never opened the Bible, that we may have never known what the Ten Commandments were, that we may have never known anything about God does not excuse us from sin. We just turn back to the beginning of um, Romans, to chapter 1, verse 20. Just read a few verses there which sets the scene for this letter. Chapter 1, verse 20 says, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, his divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God, nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man, and birds, and animals, and reptiles. Sin, in its basic form, is saying that there is no God. And I will decide what the moral laws are for my life. And I may change those laws depending 
on whether they suit my situation, depending on the culture I live in. So I don't believe that you should hurt anybody else, but if somebody hurts me or my family, then I'm fully justified to go out and meet my revenge on them. And the level of that revenge will depend how angry I am at the time. Or a president of the United States can say, I didn't have sex with that woman, because he has made up his own definition of what sex is. We create our own moral laws. And since God has made us in his image, he's instilled in us a basic sense of morality, but because of our human natures, we twist that morality to suit our own needs, and we're left confused about whether one thing is right and another wrong. And that's where God's law comes in, because his law, his word, his instruction for us that we find here in the Bible, is applicable to all people at all times. It tells us not only what uh, we should and shouldn't do, it tells us about what is pleasing to God. It tells us what will bring blessing and joy to us in our lives. It's full of wisdom. And that is why it says here in verse 12 of chapter 7, the law is holy and the commandment is holy, righteous and good. This is why the psalmist says in the Psalm 119, Oh, how I love your law. How sweet are your words to my taste. I love your commands more than gold, more than pure gold. Your law is my delight. And it's as we learn this that we realise what is sin. Because sin is more specific than just doing wrong. Sin is about disobeying God. And how do we know if we're disobeying God if we don't know what he expects from us? Once we know what he expects from us, then we see that we cannot ourselves possibly meet those expectations. An example Paul gives here in this passage is coveting, there in verse uh, 7. And you think of all the commandments he could have chosen, why did he choose that example of coveting? Well, probably because the others you can sort of claim to have kept um, externally on 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 the surface, but coveting has to do not just with our superficial behaviour, it has to do with what is right inside us, the attitude of our hearts. None of us can deny that we covet to some degree or another. It will be different things. It may be something material. It may be Martin Walker's Jaguar. It may be a relationship. It may be a quality or a gift that we see in another person. We say, I wish I were like them. I wish I could be like them and not the way I am. God is not just concerned about what we do or we say. He's concerned about what we think and what we feel within us. And we know that we fall short every time. And the irony of the law, as Paul goes on to point out, is that by telling us what we shouldn't do, that the law inadvertently provokes us to sin. As Paul says here in verse 8, it says, But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of covetous desire. And when you think about when something is forbidden, it prompts us to want to do it, doesn't it? You think of uh, the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. They had this Garden of Paradise to enjoy. There's just one prohibition. Don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Just go and enjoy everything else. And what do they do? The temptation was there. And they did just that. 
for young people growing up, and it's a shame uh, there's not many here this evening, although I'm sure you all count yourselves as young, and we all still grow up. There's lots of things that um, we tell young people that um, not to do because we know the harm that it will cause and maybe because we've made those mistakes ourselves and we don't want to see them make those mistakes. But of course, to be told not to do something is a huge temptation to find out, well, why is it not allowed? Why is it so bad? Yesterday at the golf day of the first tee, Ray was there and he told people, you know, the best thing to do here on this hole is just to play up to the ditch and then your next shot you can hit over onto the green. But of course, having been told that, what do the first three people do? Teeing off, they say, no, I'm going to hit over that ditch. I can do this. One goes off into the trees, one goes into the hedge, one goes into the ditch itself. The law provokes us to sin, but that doesn't mean that the law is bad because our problem is sin. Our problem is not the law. We can't blame the law for the sin that is already in us. In the same way that we we find excuses for things, don't we? Now, I was very privileged to receive an invitation recently to attend a speed awareness course. (laughs) I was waiting in the queue for the drinks machine and I was talking to one chap there. He didn't stop making excuses. He was only doing 34 miles per hour. The police should have better things to do with their time than stop motorists doing 34 miles per hour. This is just a whole money-making thing. He pointed at this old woman, probably about 80, and said, what is she doing here? How can she be a menace to society? And so on, and so on. There are many excuses we can find for our sin. Maybe our upbringing. And there will be lots of people here who have had tough upbringings. It may be a tragic situation that has left us devastated. It may just be unfair treatment by others. And all these things exacerbate the problem of sin. But they're no reason for the sin itself. They've just made the sin worse. Look at verse 11. For sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me, and through the commandment put me to death. Now, going back to chapter 6, though, and if, you were, if you were here the last couple of weeks, You may remember being told that if we've been united with Christ in his death, in his resurrection, we've been set free from sin. Or we read here, verse 14, that that sin shall not be our master. So how come we still have this ongoing struggle with sin? Once we've given our lives to Christ, how come this carries on? Well, I want to say, my second point, that struggling with sin is a normal Christian experience. And these verses 14 to 25 here in chapter 7 are very difficult to try and understand. There will be different views amongst commentators about what they're getting at here. Some will say these describe the, the life of a Christian. Some will say, well, actually they describe the life of someone before they became a Christian. And others will say, well, it's some sort of in between state. Maybe it's sort of Jewish Christians still under the Old Testament law. And Paul is writing this in the the first person. But again, it raises the question, is he referring to himself before he came to faith, or is this a description of his present condition? I'm not going to go into all the arguments now, but as I've studied it, I think it is referring to the life of a Christian. And the reasons are that there is a clear change here 
in the tense that Paul uses. If you read verses 7 to 13, there's very much in the past tense to describe what life was like for him. Once I was alive apart from the law, sin deceived me. But now he says in in the second half of this chapter, I am unspiritual, I do not understand what I do. And he finishes the whole passage there in verse um, 25 by saying, So then, I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law, but in the sinful nature a slave to the law of sin. This is the current situation, even after he's been freed from sin. So, we need to try and understand what he's getting at here. And what we can't deny is that Paul describes, you know, from his own personal experience, he describes a brutal honesty, doesn't he? Look, look what it says here. It says, in those um, difficult verses there, in verses 14 to 20, saying, I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. And for someone of Paul's stature, if you like, to make such a confession is quite remarkable, isn't it? He's very honest about the tension he experiences between his intentions and between his actions. Between what he knows in his mind is the right thing to do and what he ends up doing because of the weakness of his will. We heard from Ken earlier on, didn't we, uh, that um, it is a constant struggle. We keep on messing up doing the things we don't want to do. Now, that could be a huge cause for despair. We may say, well, I might as well just give up. I'm never going to be able to master this this sin thing. That's not the line Paul goes down. Because by acknowledging this tension, he's saying that he realises what the right way is. Verse 16, look there. It says, if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. And so if you experience this struggle, take heart that it's evidence that you think God's way is the best way. But it's still the sin within you that you've identified as being responsible for continuing to get it wrong. Verse 20, now, if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. Now what Paul is not trying to do here is use, again, sin as an excuse for doing what he would actually rather do. He doesn't uh, you know, have a good old gossip or go out and get blotto and say, oh, sorry, I shouldn't have done that. You know, that's the old sin thing again within me. No, he's genuinely remorseful here. He loves to do what is pleasing to God. He hates it when he gets it wrong. And the key to this whole passage is there in verse 22. For in my inner being, I delight... In God's law, in my inner being, I delight in God's law. And it's that inner being of a Christian that has been regenerated by the Spirit, that's been set free from sin. But a war against that inner being is is the flesh, the members of the body. And we inhabit what Paul describes here as bodies of death. Now that is strong language, isn't it? Part of the Christian continues to rebel against God. Rebel against his law. But that rebellion is very different from the rebellion that we read about earlier in chapter 1. Because there, there's no internal struggle going on there. Because there, the people in their inner being as well as their outer being are against God. There, the inner being didn't delight in God's law. There, there was no desire to please him. 
Romans 1.28 says, Since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, he gave them over to a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. Only the Christian experiences this inner struggle. There may be many unbelievers who want to live a better life, but it's not because they want to glorify God. For them, God's law is irrelevant. It's, it's unrealistic. It's naive. And all the other reasons they would give. That if you know what the most popular funeral song is, which is chosen by more, most people, it's My Way by Frank Sinatra. Now it starts with the lyrics, and now the end is near, and so I face the final curtain. I'm not sure when Frank Sinatra sang that, he was thinking about the red velvet drapes of a crematorium. But it's tremendously sad to think, isn't it, that as someone meets God, they've effectively condemned themselves by saying, I did it my way. I wasn't interested in your way, God. I did it my way and I'm proud of it. As Christians, we find ourselves between two worlds. There's the present world and there is the world to come. And our inner being is under the influence of grace, it's under the influence of life. But while we live in this world, our sinful nature remains under the mastery of sin. And this is a real experience for every Christian. Yes, we would love to say that we are no longer tempted to sin, that when the Holy Spirit comes to live within us, every desire is taken away, but we know that that is not the case. We know from our own experience that we have this constant battle against sin. As we come on to chapter 8 over the next uh, few weeks, we will take great comfort from knowing that uh, the Spirit helps us in that battle. But that battle is not yet won. But the great assurance for us as Christians is that the battle will be won. There is a future victory. And as the question is posed here by Paul at the end here in verse 24, as he says, what a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? The answer comes, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And that leads on to the great news of chapter 8. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do in that it was weakened by the sinful nature, God did by sending his own son, in the likeness of sinful man, to be a sin offering. Yes, it's frustrating, this constant battle against sin, but it's not like a, a war where every time you experience a defeat in battle, you, you, you fear about will you actually win the whole, whole war, or will the enemy win over. It's a bit like a Doctor Who going back in time to the Second World War, as he often does, and chats with his old mate Winston Churchill. And he assures the British people that um, you're going to win the war. Yes, you're going to have losses along the way. You'll lose a few battles. But the victory is yours. I've been there and I've seen it. God knows when Jesus will come again and assure us of that final victory. He knows when we'll be put out of our misery, when he'll give us our resurrection bodies, which will be sinless. 
after the struggle we go through, we are assured of future victory. Well, I'd just like to finish briefly with uh, two applications from what we've been looking at. And the first is just a reassurance. If you are feeling disheartened, whether you are a young Christian, somebody new in the faith, or somebody who's been a Christian just for many years, and you, you know exactly what Paul's describing here, because it makes you discouraged in your own faith. It makes you feel like just giving up. What I'd like to say is don't. Because it doesn't mean you've failed as a Christian. And actually take heart, because what it shows is that the Spirit is at work in your life. He's revealing your sin to you. Your experience is normal for a Christian. You're no less worthy than any other Christian. And in many ways, it will be more worrying if you didn't feel like that. Which brings me on to the other application. It's a challenge to the proud. And you, you may have been sitting here this evening wondering, well, what is all this fuss about, really? Because, you know, I don't experience that struggle with sin. The Christian life, for me, is, is, is quite straightforward. And if that is you, I'd like to ask you, are you fully aware of the extent of sin within you? To what extent do you, as we sang in that song earlier on, act justly, show mercy, Walk humbly with your God. To what extent do you experience, do you just show the fruit of the Spirit that we were looking at this morning? If you think you are okay, then it's probably humility where you're lacking. I'm sure many of you will have read uh, C.S. Lewis's book, The Screwtape Letters, which um, is a great little book. Um, I'll recommend it to you if you haven't read it. It's an insight into the struggle that goes on within us. It uh, contains the letters of a wise old devil, screw taped to his young, inexperienced devil, his nephew Wormwood. Let me just read you an extract from it. He says, My dear Wormwood, the most alarming thing in your last account of the patient, this is the Christian, is that he's making none of those confident resolutions which marked his original conversion. No more lavish promises of perpetual virtue, I gather. Not even the expectation of an endowment of grace for life. But only a hope for the daily and hourly pittance to meet the daily and hourly temptation. This is very bad. I see only one thing to do at the moment. Your patient has become humble. Have you drawn his attention to the fact? All virtues are less formidable to us once the man is aware that he has them but this is especially true of humility. Catch him at the moment when he's really poor in spirit and smuggling to his mind the gratifying reflection. By Jove, I'm being humble. And almost immediately, pride, pride at his own humility will appear. If he awakes to the danger and tries to smother this new form of pride, make him proud of his attempt. And so on, through as many stages as you please. But don't try this too long for fear you awake his sense of humour and proportion, in which case he will merely laugh at you and go to bed, and so on. The way we appreciate our sinfulness is to understand God's perfection. Read through the Sermon on the Mount and ask yourself, do you measure up to those standards of behaviour, that love for your enemies, that honesty, that forgiveness, that generosity, that lack of covetousness. 
Or maybe you are aware of your, uh, your sin and the struggle that Paul describes here, but you would never admit that to anybody else. What would they think of you if you admitted that struggle going on in you? After all, they would lose their respect for me. And let me ask you there, what do you think you gain from pretending that everything is okay? One of the positive things we've uh, had with the men's discipleship group that meets monthly on a Saturday morning is that it enables men to be more honest about their struggles and to see that they're not the only ones going through these things. And it's as you're honest about your struggles, as others pray for you, as you pray for others, that you will know the Spirit at work in your life, helping you to overcome them. And we'll look more at this next time. Because we don't need to be defeatist about this. Yes, we've got the final victory ashore, but that doesn't mean we can't try and defeat the devil in these battles. That is what the Spirit working within us enables us to do. The question I want to leave you tonight is how is your inner being? How is your inner being? Can you, as Paul did, can you say, in my inner being, I delight in God's law?